Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Dr. Rowena McKinsey. Rowena qualified in South Africa and then worked there as a dermatologist for 10 years before we were fortunate that she chose to come to England uh, and is based in Winchester. She worked at the Royal County uh, Hospital, uh, Hampshire Hospital, as a consultant there and was a clinical lead for the West Hampshire Community Diabetes, uh, Diabetes, sorry, that's my other or Community Dermatology Service. Uh, and she continues in private practice. And what Rowena's going to do today is give us a taste of what she's learned through lockdown uh, and give us some really fantastic tips on how we can manage dermatology remotely. We're also going to hear a little bit about COVID um, and I'll hand over to you Rowena. So thanks very much uh, Julia for the invitation to speak to you all today and um, welcome to you all. Um, Julia asked me if I would be happy to share um, some tips, some lessons that I've learned from the past year in lockdown, specifically in dermatology. So to start with, I just thought I'd just give you a brief outline of how I've structured uh, the session um, this afternoon. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've learned about remote and virtual consulting and predominantly the practicalities of that. And then what are the pros and cons and, and how I've found it. I will be doing a little bit on the skin signs of COVID uh, purely through my own experience in the past year. The, the bulk of the talk will be on cases that I've seen, using the cases both for teaching, but to try and indicate where I think um, remote dermatology works well and where the downfalls are. And then just thinking about the past year when uh, Jules spoke to me, I realized that I've seen a huge amount of acne and an increased amount of acne, severe acne with severe scarring. So I thought I might spend a little bit of time on that at the end with a bit of management. I have got a lot of cases today and we don't have to get through them all, but because I want to get through the acne bit in particular, if I see time is moving, I might just um, jump through some of the cases uh, which just stand alone uh, on their own, you won't miss out if, if I skip those and we'll get to the end. So um, for all of us, it's been a huge change this past year in the way we practice medicine. But for me in particular, I found it such a rapid pace of change because as a clinical lead of, of the West Hampshire CCG's community dermatology service, we've been trying to get teledermatology running uh, for many years actually. And we hit a lot of stumbling blocks along the way, uh, both uh, from GPs using the service both from our secondary care um, colleagues and in fact from patients themselves. But really within about one or two weeks of lockdown, all of those fears, all of those barriers just fell away. And um, generally, uh, teledermatology, online virtual consulting became the way of delivering good uh, healthcare and in fact for many patients, the only way of giving them any healthcare. And so that for us is, I think, a really positive thing. And I'm hoping that we can continue to run with that when we're all uh, back up um, as normal. I'm not going to spend a long time on the basic practicalities. Of course, we must have consent for any virtual online consultations. Confidentiality is key, especially in dermatology. The patients um, must feel very comfortable, especially with someone like myself, who is sometimes working at home, that there isn't going to be someone else in the room seeing them if we're on a video consult and they're showing me their skin. 
Um, so those sort of things we take as a given. But for me, we need good quality images in dermatology. We're really fortunate that dermatology is a visual subject. So working um, over the computer, looking at pictures has actually not been that tricky and it's worked well in, for a number of patients. So I request two photographs minimum for each thing the patient wants me to look at. I must have a photograph that shows me the area involved. So a photograph from fairly far away and then a close up to give us the detail. Uh, to be honest, patients will send many more if they can. And uh, so you often have quite a few to choose from. It is difficult, not everybody um, are, is good at photography, but most people have a phone today that will take a good photograph. And I just try and say to them, find natural light for the skin, but definitely not looking into the light. So the worst photos for me are a patient in a dark room standing at the window to get the light in and they take the picture into the window. You really just can't see any of the skin color and, and the definition. So try and uh, advise them against that. Another little practical point is at the beginning, I found that the images people were sending through were really large. So I now have in my little thing to patients, please, if at all possible, if you have a choice on your email, could you choose the medium size uh, when you get to send the photographs? Because those actually fit really well onto the computer screen. Now, yes, for photographs, we do need uh, a telephone or a camera to use, but I found on the whole, the majority of people do have them. The pros of virtual consulting, and I'm sure you all agree with me, is there is convenience for both parties. Uh, colleagues and myself find it uh, very helpful on our days to be at home consulting, especially while we've been trying to homeschool. Um, but also for the patient, they can fit it into their homeworking very easily. There's more flexibility. I certainly am able to offer patients uh, times that I wouldn't be able to offer if I had a set clinic at the hospital. Uh, it's efficient time-wise because they don't have to travel. And in particular, I found that my school children, the teenagers with acne, when they returned to school uh, in the second half of last year, they really enjoyed their follow-ups and that we suggested to the parents that they could just drive to the school take the child out of school, sit in the car. We have a video consultation, which they're very used to and very comfortable with. And then they pop back into class. So they're not losing all that school time that they used to do with traveling backwards and forwards and waiting in the waiting room. So that's been a positive for them. For parents, there are no parking issues. I've also found it interesting that I've had a number of patients living at a distance want appointments, many of them out of Hampshire, perhaps they're not dermatologists around, perhaps they want a second opinion, but I've had a lot of people from far away who are very happy to do an initial online consultation and then if you do need to see them, they know that they're not wasting their time to come through. And of course, our university students who have been home and then on campus in bubbles and not allowed out and all those sort of things, being able to manage them online has been very useful. I do like to make a difference between telephone consulting and video consulting. 
And I'm not sure um, in the audience who does more, but certainly for dermatology and for my cohort of patients, I started off doing telephone consulting with good photographs and we did get very far. Um, I don't think medically we actually lost much at all, but certainly in terms of the social interaction and the rapport with the patient, there's no doubt that for me, a video consult is far superior. The telephone consults, of course, tend to be far quicker, which is quite nice for the doctor. But on just questioning my patients as we go, the vast majority, I would say 99% will opt for a video consult if given the chance. They like if it's the first time they've met you, they like to see you, they like to know who they're talking to. And I suppose in lockdown, some of them were just quite lonely and they lacked the social interaction. So I've now moved almost predominantly to video consulting. I still need photographs. You really can't assess the skin over the video. Um, but it's a few patients that prefer the telephone. As we found in our Telederm pilot uh, for, for the CCG, uh, Telederm and photographs are very good for single lesions. In fact, they are also good for a few of the inflammatory skin disorders and things like eczema, psoriasis, they can be managed really well. And very definitely acne has been a big win uh, doing that online. I, I find that a very, very satisfying service and people seem to like it. And in fact, when I could offer face-to-face, -face, many of my acne patients have requested that they stay with a video consult. I know I probably have the luxury of more time than you people do when you're seeing your patients, but I uh, have found it quite useful to see the photographs beforehand. So my secretary collates my photographs for the day uh, in time order, and I try and get to them either the night before or early in the morning. And if there is a case that just looks a little difficult, something I haven't seen in a while or before, does give me a little bit of time to prepare, which I have found quite useful. So there are, however, also a lot of cons, and I think most of us did medicine because we enjoy patient contact and we didn't really want to be behind the screen. So certainly the loss of patient contact is a big one, but certainly the loss of colleague contact as well. Not only that it's less social and you don't get to catch up, but also the fact that you don't have someone at hand just to bat something off, second opinion, get a question to someone. I think that's quite a big loss in online um, consulting. Definitely it's more difficult for elderly patients, well certainly my elderly patients, because some of them don't have telephones or do but can't use them to take photographs. So trying to do a dermatology consult without a photograph is somewhat tricky. Um, so that is, has been limiting when our elderly patients uh, were shielding and some of them didn't even want their family members in with them or didn't have carers. So some people you really just couldn't help because their description uh, wasn't really that helpful. But I do try and uh, make sure that any elderly patient that has a carer that their appointment coincides with that because that is extremely helpful. Of course, in dermatology, there is nothing that can make up for the feel of the skin. So touching and feeling the skin, if you're not sure what the diagnosis is, that is essential. And we lose that completely in just looking at a photograph. 
Some conditions it's just not possible and quite a lot. We need the dermatoscope for many of our lesions, not only our melanocytic lesions these days. And of course, for the patients I've been seeing, um, many of them are taking their own photographs. So it's not as though they've been with the GP who could take a photograph with a dermatoscope. Many of them phoned up in um, lockdown. They didn't want to. Uh, put extra stress on, on the GP and primary care services. So that whole lot with a lot of things that you need a dermatoscope for, you can't do online. The big one for us is you can't do a full skin check. And because of that, I'm sure we've missed a lot of lesions of concern. As most dermatologists will know, very often the lesion the patient has come for is fine. And when we check their full skin, we find something else. So once you've reassured someone uh, online and over the, they're very unlikely to come back for a while, understandably. And so we probably are missing things that we wouldn't have done if we'd seen them face to face. And then something I found out about two or three months into lockdown is you can only temporize for so long. So at the beginning, most of the patients that we saw that had things that, you know, were a single lesion, maybe a BCC, something not very urgent, but you could say to them, look, I'm sure it's a BCC. I do need to check that face to face. But, you know, it can wait a few months, three or four months, and we'll be back and we'll be seeing you. Well, of course, as things have gone on, you could no longer say that to the patients that you'd said you'd see in three or four months face to face. You really had to see them face to face. And then I will say that I have found it quite labor intensive in the fact that there's a lot of admin and I really wouldn't cope without my secretary collating photographs, making sure patients have sent the photographs. She checks them for me and weeds out any that she thinks are completely disastrous and asks the patients to resend them. And then also after an online consultation, particularly in dermatology where there are lots of different creams and different timings to use them, um, very often we'll need to do a written care plan via email, which I find takes a bit longer than if the patient's with you and you're just jotting down a few notes that you can give them to take with them. So that's a little bit just about consulting online. And I'll move now to um, a case, which really is a, a case study, I suppose. It, it tracks the course of this young girl over the past year. And I think it's quite interesting in that it gives us quite a few signs of what we see in COVID that happened to this one uh, poor young girl. She's actually someone I know. She's 20 years old. She's been a type one insulin dependent diabetic since the age of seven. Uh, she's a highly motivated young lady. She uh, has her mum and her dad are doctors. She's on a pump for her diabetes. And I think she's never had an abnormal HbA1c. So she's uh, not someone to mess around. She wouldn't be putting on any symptoms. She presently is studying um, at an Ivy League university in the States, which is where she was when she got sick. So I haven't actually looked after her, but I have been sent photographs for second opinions along the way. And I just thought they make a fantastic uh, synopsis of what COVID can do to the skin. So the first uh, contact I got was uh, late January last year when she was um, in Boston in a dorm, uh, in a, a halls of residence and she started to feel unwell and that she felt exhausted suddenly and she had bouts of gastro uh, for about a day or two and severe nausea. 
Prior to that, she had noticed that her sugars had been completely out of control for two weeks, which was very unusual for her. And no matter what she did with her sensor and her pump, she could not correct it. She had no shortness of breath and no cough. But as the few days went on, she became severely fatigued, such that she's very sort of... Uh, she likes to achieve. She didn't want to miss her lectures. She started uh, uh, using her little scooter to go from lecture room to lecture room because she was so tired. And then a few days later, she presented with a rash. She woke with a rash on her face. Now, this was day two of the rash, and there was an initial picture which looked very similar but was a little less florid. But by the time I got this rash, I've had to cut off some of it just to protect her identity. But the rash was strikingly like a butterfly rash. It was on both cheeks, went over the nasal bridge, and she said felt, she felt really flushed and hot, and it stayed there. A day later, it looked more florid and she had developed a slight sort of mobiliform rash, I suppose, for want of a better word, on her abdomen. And then I got the call, could I help? Uh, she wasn't well and did I have any ideas? Well, of course, COVID was not so called in the United States at that time. And so it really didn't cross my mind. Uh, she obviously has an autoimmune disease. She's also hypothyroid. And I immediately thought, could she have lupus or could this just be a viral illness? Uh, both of which I gave my opinion on and they went to doctors there who really didn't take her fatigue very seriously at all. Uh, tried to imply she's actually also a student athlete um, at the university and tried to imply that she was just, you know, overworked and tired, which uh, really didn't go down well with her. Over the next few days, and I'm afraid I don't have the exact uh, timeline because she wasn't my patient, she developed a few other unusual features. She noticed that her tongue looked very strange and she sent it to me, had I seen it before. She developed flitting rashes that were mobiliform that I thought were viral at that stage. And at this stage, I started to say to her, could she perhaps have something like slap cheeks, a parvo B19? Uh, her mum by that stage had gone over to be with her and uh, was taking her to doctors and requesting bloods. A few days after that, she woke up one morning with this very swollen lower lip. And if you see, uh, just at the corners, there's a hint of sort of an angular chelitis starting. And she had an associated urticaria. She does have uh, eczema, so and she has had isolated episodes of urticaria, so we just thought she was being particularly unlucky at the time. But her lips became significantly worse, and you can still see that her cheeks are very red. She noticed unusual hemorrhagic patches in her buccal mucosa. And most bizarrely, she developed a unilateral swollen tonsil, which came and went for some time and on, one in, and on some instances also had these hemorrhagic areas. So just to recap, she had had red cheeks, query butterfly rash, gastro with severe nausea. Her sugars were consistently high throughout this period. Along with the pinpoint hemorrhages in her mouth, she also reported mouth ulcers and little vesicles, which I did not see. She had tongue changes and a unilateral tonsil enlargement, unusual changes to her lips, urticaria and exhaustion. 
And then she developed a significant tachycardia. And that was when her mum phoned me back and said, did I know of anything? As she stood up to brush her teeth, her resting pulse used to be 40. She went to 160 and her resting pulse never came below about 80 to 90, which was very unusual for her. She felt extremely unwell. Uh, she used to have attacks of this. When she stood up, she would get dizzy and she would faint. And I started to think, wow, has she got some, you know, sort of myocarditis or something? And I said, look, we must get Parvo B19 studies done because that can be associated with a myocarditis. To cut a long story short, things rolled on. Um, her whole halls of residence, well, not the whole halls, but there were eight of them in a little flatlet, all became ill at this time. One girl who was Chinese but hadn't been to China had to be admitted with a viral pneumonia to a hospital. The others were up and down. Some were bad, some weren't. Still nobody really twigged, although the girls amongst themselves kept saying, I wonder if it's COVID. By this stage, um, this young lady's mum, who is a doctor, was really convinced that it was COVID and wasn't getting a lot of help from the doctors there who still said couldn't possibly be. And um, she took her home and they did MRI, an MRI of her heart and she did have a myocarditis. So she things improved a little. She rested, she stopped doing everything she'd been doing, but she still felt really shattered and obviously had gone into long COVID. But very interestingly for me was over the next nine months, she continued to have bouts of when she felt particularly bad. She would look like she was getting better, then she would be hit by the exhaustion and all her skin signs would return. So as you can see, this is a completely different time. She's looking much better, but she woke up, she felt really tired again, came on, she had the cheeks again, she had the urticaria, she had this unusual sort of rash, which I think is probably urticarial, but I couldn't feel it, although it could be mobiliform. At times she has a follicular sort of very itchy rash, almost looks like an eczema. Lo and behold, the tongue has come back and this time a very classic COVID tongue with these sort of atrophic patches that have been described. Sorry. And the tonsil has returned uh, on a number of occasions. Her myocarditis continued but slowly has improved and uh, her resting pulse went back to in the 40s only in December of this year. And in early January, she had another flare of her urticaria, but I haven't heard of, of any more since. So I just thought, wow, an amazing uh, sort of history in one person of a strange disease that we know now can very definitely do skin signs. In fact, it's almost a defining feature of the disease. But obviously when she had it, we didn't uh, initially, we didn't know that. But I haven't been aware of skin signs flaring up throughout the course of an illness that quite clearly uh, is connected because she gets the gastro, the exhaustion and the myocarditis with it. But turning to another patient, my first case that I dealt with was a colleague whose husband was also a colleague and had caught COVID and she suddenly became very itchy and developed urticaria. And she kindly said I could share her pictures. So she phoned me uh, in lockdown and said, listen, what do you think? And um, 
you know, it was just coming out at that stage. It was really early. It was the end of March, early April, that urticaria was definitely a feature of COVID. So she had it on her palms. She had it on her legs. And um, she ran a, a mild course of COVID. The urticaria persisted. It, antihistamines did help. And it, it stopped after uh, her COVID settled. And she, she's had no sequelae. Then I didn't see any more skin signs of COVID until a couple of weeks ago when this uh, man was referred to me with his hands. And um, his story is that he's been completely well. Uh, in December, when we went into lockdown, he and his wife had been working from home for a long time, but they do have two children at primary school. And he was aware that just before lockdown, there had been a positive case in his child's school. Just on, he felt that was his only contact. Just on chatting, he did tell me that he was very healthy and he ran a lot because I was asking him, did he have any other symptoms of anything? And he said, oh, but by the way, I actually had a bad accident. I fell when I was running in early December and I had to go into the county hospital for an x-ray. So clearly he had a contact at that point, uh, unless it was through the child's school. But by Christmas time, this had started developing to his hands. He first uh, developed blisters, and I'm not sure if you can see, but that was actually a little vesicle. And then quite clearly he had these vasculopathic uh, sort of changes, which pre-COVID, you know, you might think of lupus or vasculitis or uh, little microangiopathy. Um, but very interesting, and I think these are COVID fingers as opposed to COVID toes. They do not look like just chillblains. Uh, they were extremely sore. He had the swelling. It was sort of um, two to three weeks after he had been in the county hospital. So he could have had an asymptomatic COVID. And you do get these later on in the course of, of, of your COVID. So um, we are organizing antibodies uh, for him to see if he's had it. So it would be interesting to know, but he's otherwise completely well. They've settled down. And um, in fact, when I saw him, they'd almost gone and he bought the photographs. So I think it must be. So interesting case. So I just thought I'd, I'd run through that. We're in COVID, the related rashes now, macular papular eruptions, normally during COVID, about 47%, about half of the, of the skin signs we see. Urticarial lesions are common and they occur early on and during. The, the pseudo chill brains or the COVID toes or the COVID fingers, which is a, a, the macroangiopathy, really little uh, little clots um, from COVID, that normally occurs when they're convalescing from their COVID. I haven't seen any vesicular eruptions, although the young lady who I spoke about is adamant that she was getting uh, associated vesicles in her mouth every time her tonsils uh, blew up and she got the, the little hemorrhages um, in her mouth. And interestingly, um, although I don't have a photograph, her mum actually contracted COVID when she was with her. And she sent me a picture of significant levido, but she actually was very sick for a few days and then recovered. So levido and some necrosis is definitely known in COVID. So now to move on to just some case studies. 
uh, of patients that I've seen over the year, patients that have taken their own photographs, because I thought it would be good for you to see uh, the quality that we've been getting and I'd be interested to know about your experiences of the photographs you've been getting. So um, things that work well for me are single lesions. So this is a benign intradermal nevus. It saves the patients coming in. He wanted it off purely from a cosmetic point of view. So you can discuss that very nicely online and plan the time that suits him. So there's only at this stage, there was only one face-to-face -face interaction rather than two. This lady was extremely worried about this brownie lesion that had appeared during lockdown, uh, which clearly is a lentigo or some sun damage. And then this uh, was a newest lesion, which I thought was a seborrheic keratosis or a little uh, benign nevus that she had maybe caught. So just being able to reassure patients in the beginning, because I saw this patient in early April, just to say, you know, it's fine, it can wait, it's not dangerous. People were very grateful. So a nice classic seborrheic keratosis. We like to say they stuck on. It looks like you could just pluck them off the skin. Uh, normally they come to you because as in this case, it's been irritated. They look a little bit black and that makes people anxious, understandably, but it's normally just that it's been caught and the blood supply has been disturbed. This was a patient that I uh, spoke about people from far and wide. He actually lives in Hampshire, but had been in Dubai for about six months when this popped up on his leg. And uh, he was very anxious about it. So he was in lockdown in Dubai, couldn't get to see a, a doctor and was really grateful to be able to be reassured over the phone. And then of course, uh, in the summer when he came back, we were able to, to take it off for him because he didn't like it. Again, this lady, uh, just a nice picture of a seborrheic keratosis. You can actually see the little horn cysts, the little warty appearance stuck on. Very nice to reassure them. There's no problem. This one was a little different. Uh, it was a lady that had had this lesion. It was new. And when I looked at it on this sort of full view, I thought maybe that was a little hemangioma. But when I looked at the close-up, you could clearly see that that was hard and there was a little gutter around it. And actually that was a giant comedone. And that was just a whole lot of debris that had caught in there. I was pretty sure but anything like that, I'm always happier to look with a dermatoscope. So I reassured her online and then asked her to pop in uh, when we were open again for non-urgent stuff. I've seen a lot of cysts uh, this year being referred. I think maybe patients have had a lot of time to uh, catch up with things they've been meaning to do for a long time because a lot of people have said, oh, I've had it for a long time and now I just want to get rid of it. But cysts are actually quite difficult to do online. As you can see here, you really can't see the cyst. It is sitting over there, but it's, it's difficult. Now, this patient was actually amazing because not only did he send this photograph unasked for with the marking where it was, but he actually showed me there that it was not attached to any underlying bone. So actually he did do his own examination and that made it uh, easier to say, yes, I'm sure it is a cyst and we can just book you uh, when we are doing non-urgent work again. You, you don't need to come in for that consultation. We're happy to just see you um, on the day. Another lady uh, with a cyst that had quite a dark center and at first I was a little concerned before I looked at the higher view that that might be melanocytic but here quite clearly this, there is an underlying cyst and that is the comedonal plug in the cyst. 
Now, one thing that's worked really well is solar keratoses, because solar keratoses we've been able to treat with effudex at a time when people don't mind what they look like because they're not being seen in lockdown. So that's been useful. I've only had the odd person that's doing a lot of work on Zoom who hasn't wanted to use effudex, but the elderly folk have been really too happy to do it while they, they're not socializing. So this gentleman actually came in for or sent this photo in for this lesion, which really was causing him discomfort, which normally is a sign that the solar keratosis might be changing. He hadn't really noticed that one that wasn't sore at all, and he, and he had a number of others. But uh, clearly the ones that are worrying him that... Uh, that you can't see them to treat just with liquid nitrogen. Normally, if there was just one lesion like that, I'd probably just freeze it because it works well and is quick. But uh, Effudex worked to treat. And so people are, have been happy, whether it's just one or two lesions or multiple lesions across the forehead and the scalp to use it. This lady is a, a well-known patient to me. She's had a number of Bowens treated in the past and she uh, sent in a photo of a new Bowens. And uh, again, Effudex works really well uh, with Bowens as with solar keratosis. I treat twice a day for three weeks. I know some people do once a day for four weeks and that's fine. Um, but certainly for Bowens, I think you would need twice a day. Three weeks is the shortest. If they get a really good reaction, I say fine, like she's had a really good reaction, that's no problem. But if after three weeks it hasn't really reacted, they can push on for six weeks. And only then if it hasn't reacted do I tell them, you know, please call me and we'll, and we'll treat it in another way. So that responded very well to Effudex. These are two patients um, that also, just to show you, Effudex can be used to good effect just in a small area. You don't have to use it over the whole area that we normally do. So this lady on the right of my screen is well known to me with multiple BCCs and significant sun damage. And I had actually just prior to lockdown biopsied a lesion that I thought was a small BCC. And it came back as a dysplastic solar keratosis. And clearly I hadn't uh, got the whole thing out because I was just doing a biopsy. So I asked her to follow up with Effudex and just to show you you know just one small single lesion you can get quite a florid response. This lady was quite interesting because she had come to see me for her rosacea which she did have. She had an erythema on both cheeks and across the bridge of her nose you can just see some telangiectasia and the erythema actually was sort of up there and all the way down to there on both sides that little bit being the telangiectasia but on this side I, I I could see that this was really uh, crusty and thickened. It just looked different. And so I gave her Effudex and um, it's a good diagnostic tool. It, it worked really well. So that was a solar keratosis on top of her rosacea. Unfortunately, I didn't have the pre-photographs for this gentleman because I actually did see him face to face um, sort of in about October and asked him to treat a significant area with Effudex, but just to remind you that it can be quite a florid response and patients really need to be uh, spoken through very carefully what they're going to have to expect. Otherwise, you'll get a lot of phone calls. But if they know that they're going to look sore and it might be a little uncomfortable, they, they cope with it better. 
I do feel that one thing that you shouldn't forget to do when people are treating a large area is to tell them to not use soap to wash the area, but to wash with a cream, either a, a creamy wash, but actually a cream, something like aqueous cream, which we don't like for moisturizing the skin, but because of its aqueous base, it's actually really good for washing the skin, I find, when you're using Effudex, because they can wipe, put, put it on before they shower or wash their face, wipe it off with damp cotton wool and warm water, and it will remove a lot of the extra sort of scale and debris that's collected, and it makes it more comfortable for them, and they can dry their skin and put the Effudex on, and they can do that um, twice a day, but they don't have to wash their skin twice a day if they don't want to. So moving on from SKs, uh, BCCs have also been, uh, we've also been able to manage the, the superficial BCCs to some degree. So this lady actually came to me last April. She, as you can see, has a big scar here from about 10 years ago. She had had an infiltrative BCC removed and she reports that this new lesion had been there for about two to three years. A lot of people came in with things that they'd been leaving for a long time. I think they suddenly had time to deal with them. So she sent in her photographs and quite clearly I was sure it was a BCC. It gave a history of bleeding. It was uncomfortable and you could see this sort of ulcerated lesion that's got telangiectasia within it in, in a very sun exposed area with a previous history of a BCC. Um, so I advised her that uh, even though it was quite a nuisance for her, unfortunately at that stage we could do no uh, non-urgent surgery, but as soon as we could do it, uh, we would. Um, and eventually she, she did have that excised and it was an infiltrative BCC with some superficial BCC that was at the edge of the biopsy. So we elected to uh, treat the scar with Aldara to treat a superficial BCC. And very interestingly, nothing came up on the scar. So although the biopsy had said that it was right on the edge, it obviously was right on the edge and none had been left behind. But very clearly, a number of lesions had popped up on her chest. Now, I'll just pop back. When I went back to look at this with an eye of faith, maybe there's a little something there and there. Perhaps one of those pigmented things would react, but I really wasn't expecting a huge reaction. I didn't think that that was completely covered in sun damage, but you can see the the the, the good response from using a field treatment rather just treating one tiny little area. Now, the difference with Aldara from Effudex is Effudex is cytotoxic, so it will kill those abnormal cells that it comes into contact with. But Aldara actually works on an immune basis and and. I describe it to the patients that it triggers the immune system in the skin and your Langerhans cells. And um, so you will, an area is, is uh, triggered to attack the abnormal cancerous cells. So if you have other little areas around with Aldara, yes, you will see this sort of field effect and it's quite useful because it will treat those areas. Uh, this was a lady who came to me uh, with uh, sent her photographs in with this lesion and over here and I she has significant sun exposure quite openly likes the sun is not going to stop and I thought that those were uh, that was a superficial BCC. She also had on her leg this little thing that I thought was most probably a basal cell carcinoma, although very difficult to make that call without a dermatoscope because a single red nodule, it could even be lymphocytic. But there were a few um, 
little vessels in the lesion and I thought it was quite safe. So I said to her, look, why don't you treat uh, the previous one with Aldara, which um, I got her to use from Monday to Friday, once a day for six weeks. And I always warn them that if they have a major flare, which does happen quite quickly with Aldara, they should stop the treatment, let it settle down over about a week and then start up again. And because they've by that stage killed off quite a lot of the abnormal cells, the, the reaction is normally less florid the second time round. But I explained to her that Aldara we don't use to treat nodular BCCs and that would need to be excised. However, she decided she would give it a try. And surprisingly to me, she said she had a significant reaction. And when I saw her um, after the summer to see whether we needed to take that out, she had treated it with Aldara and it had gone. So that was actually quite interesting. We don't normally use it for nodular BCCs. This was a colleague who came to me because he had this little lesion in his ear and there, there was blood on his pillow and this he sent this photograph to me. He was very concerned and he requested a face-to-face -face that I would look at it with uh, the dermatoscope. By the time I saw him about 10 days later, um, actually they had started to develop a little uh, crusty area and I thought it was a hypertrophic solar keratosis. So um, I said to him, look, if you are anxious, why don't we just curate it rather than just freezing it so at least we will get histology and then we'll know what it is. So in between the next week or two while we were waiting to do the procedure he sent me this photograph and he had indeed developed a little cutaneous horn and I thought I was really clever and I wrote back to him and I said oh you see I told you it would be a hypertrophic cellular keratosis with a little horn so I think we're on track for the curatage. Um, I did the curatage and I immediately knew that it wasn't just a uh, a, um, a hypertrophic solar keratosis because when you feel a BCC on a keratage it's very soft and the BCC comes out very easily compared with the hardness of the surrounding normal skin and I, I was a bit surprised but it definitely felt like a BCC but unusual to get a keratinous horn and the histology came back as a basy squame uh, such a tiny little lesion so I referred him to um, the ENT head and neck guys to, to do a more formal uh, excision so that was a little bit uh, unexpected. And then this is one of my patients I've known for a long time. He uh, had had a hypertrophic cellular keratosis treated uh, on his hand in this exact area. I think we've treated it two or three times with both Effudex, liquid nitrogen, it tends to go. A bit similar to some of these other patches here on his hands. As you can see, he's got lots of sun damage. He grew up in Zimbabwe in South Africa, but he suddenly over the course of a month developed this nodule, which quite clearly was a squamous cell carcinoma. And that was just another photograph a few days later. So that needed a formal excision with grafting. This is another lady who's a, a physio. She's similar story, had had a hypertrophic solar keratosis and just last week sent through these photographs uh, and clearly a recurrence with a, with a nodular lesion with a sort of crater in the middle. We're not going to curate again. So I've referred her for formal excision. So very useful if you don't need to bring them in for that uh, appointment and then tell them they have to come back or go somewhere else uh, for the procedure. If you just see them online, that works really well.
Of course, you do sometimes get photographs like this. And I just put this in to remind us that, you know, if a patient gives you a photograph like this, there's just nothing you can do. You just have to say, look, I'm really sorry. You either have to get a better photograph or you have to come in. But don't ever try and diagnose something on a shocking photograph that will put you at risk. Because once you've given a diagnosis, they'll hold you to it. But on the other hand, you get patients who give you this when you haven't asked for it. So this was one of my patients who uh, wanted in particular these two moles examined. It was very useful to see that there are quite a lot of moles. Then gave me the high power view with the ruler, which I do now try and tell people to do. So we've got an idea of size. And this uh, was a really classical fried egg, uh, dysplastic nevus with the center. Both of them I wasn't really that concerned about, but because this one was so black and there were a few changes and I thought it was actually truly dysplastic, I advised that that be excised when uh, non-urgent surgery was back on. So this one, of course, was the patient who came, who sent me 10 other photographs and added this one in. Um, and of course, this was the melanoma um, so that those ones, very nice again to have seen them quickly online and then bring them in. All right, I'm just going to run through these for plenty of time for another day. But I was asked specifically to just touch on pemphigoid by one of the people. So this is a patient actually I've been struggling with this year in lockdown. Um, and he developed another rash last year and then an intense itch. And the itch was the problem for a long while before the blisters came out, which can happen with pemphigoid. And they can sometimes have urticarial lesions. So pemphigoid, I normally remember because the D of pemphigoid means deep. So the split is deep uh, at the dermoepidermal junction, as opposed to pemphigus, which ends in an S and the split is superficial. And that helps you with what it looks like because when the split is deep, you get these blisters that remain intact for quite a long time and uh, are these fluid filled. In elderly people, the lower legs is a very common area and sometimes you can get pemphigoid just on those parts. So he had florid pemphigoid on his feet. You can see when they open, um, you've got this sort of uh, raw ulcerated area, but for pemphigus, where the split is much more superficial, you, you see far fewer of these discrete lesions and there's more like a peeling look to the skin with little blisters because they break so quickly because the split in the skin from pemphigoid, which is on an immune basis, uh, is more superficial at the dermoepidermal junction. So, these are on his wrist. If you are suspicious of pemphigoid, which tense blisters like that with severe itch, it must be your number one thought. Not much else that can do it. You don't often get very tiny blisters with pemphigoid. They tend to be quite large. Um, that needs a dermatological assessment because you don't only need a biopsy for histology, but we need a biopsy for immunofluorescence, direct immunofluorescence to see uh, where and which antibodies in IgG or IgA that's binding at the dermoepidermal junction to give us the diagnosis of pemphigoid. We do also sometimes request blood for IgG uh, at on an indirect immunofluorescence. But if you've got a good sample and you get a good direct immunofluorescence, you don't really need to do the blood as well. 
Obviously, treatment, unless it's very limited, where you can use a potent steroid like Dermavate, if it's just one or two patches on the legs, a treatment is oral steroids. And then uh, the big challenge is trying to find a steroid sparing agent to get them off their steroids, because very often it's the steroid, the high doses that they need. Often we start them on one milligram per kilogram. Uh, it's those doses that cause the problems more than the pemphigoid. So I hope that's been helpful. I just wanted to run through uh, acne and I'm going to just really go through the pictures quickly so that I can chat about the management. So this is really mild acne. She has got scarring obviously from previously, but just a few little lesions. This is, remember, I'm not going to see the very, very mild because they don't come through to me because you guys have already treated them. But this was um, sort of mildish maybe a little bit moderate for the patient thinks it's really bad, but she has got quite a lot of comedones. She's got papules, she's scratching some of them. This is a moderate uh, to a more moderately severe because there is significant scarring already. So yes, the lesions are small, they're not nodular cystic, but the scarring is going to be there no matter what, that's the type of acne. So don't be fooled by the size of the lesion, always look for scarring. And if there's scarring, you must be aggressive. I always say to patients, we are very, very good at treating acne. We are still pretty poor at treating scarring and it's a much more difficult and more expensive. So get your treatment for your acne so you don't later on need treatment for your scarring. So for mild acne, I just thought I'd run through a few things that uh, I like to use. I just wanted to mention for the very mild, there is a product called Effaclar Duo by La Roche-Posay, which quite a few of us like. And there is a wash, but in, in particular, it's the cream, uh, Effaclar that can actually do quite well for very mild sort of comedonal, the odd papule. If someone asks you, you know, what can I buy that's not medicated, they can just buy that over the counter. It's quite a useful product to know. If, however, you're starting to prescribe, I tend to put them on a gentle non-foaming wash, something like Cetaphil or La Roche per se also makes something. I've used Cetaphil for a long time and I find it works really well. It also has a bit of resourcenol in to help with um, comedones, but you really want something gentle that doesn't strip the skin so that they tolerate the topical. If they just given uh, the tube of differin or the tube of benzyl peroxide, for sure they will burn and they won't use it. So it's really important to, to give them a wash that sets the pH of the skin correctly so they tolerate the topical. If they're very mild, a topical, sorry, that should say azelaic acid, um, like skinnerin, can be useful particularly for comedonal acne, but I don't find it does that much uh, as it gets more severe. A topical retinoid is key. As we know, it works uh, in the follicle. It helps maturation of the skin. And it's really important today that people are offered a topical retinoid early on to prevent acne. You need to tell them it won't treat the big pimple that pops up, but it should prevent their acne. Topical benzyl peroxide, also really good. And particularly if it's combined um, with another product, if, if you want to put a, a topical antibiotic, then the topical benzyl peroxide helps prevent resistance. And you can get your epiduo, which is benzyl peroxide, with your topical retinoid duo, is your benzyl peroxide with the antibiotic. Uh, 
there's a topical retinoid combined with a topical antibiotic like treclin. I find that very nice. I find it personally just a little harsher. So my older patients love it, but sometimes on a very young skin, uh, it can be a little harsh. And then of course, they're topical antibiotics on their own like Xenerit. Um, but I do find nowadays you really do need something uh, like a retinoid or um, benzoyl peroxide that's dealing uh, with the problem more than just the topical antibiotic. Just a little hint, I always give this to patients, they think you're a bit crazy, but if you take a lot of time telling them how to use their topical, you will get a lot of benefit. I tell them to wash their skin with Cetaphil. They must wait five minutes and then I look at the young people who think I'm really old and crazy and I say, you know, you could brush your teeth in that time so you don't forget. And they, they remember it. Then they must dry their, uh, so wash and dry your face brush your teeth, <laughs> apply the topical sparingly. It's not a moisturizer. And then they can moisturize on top if needed. They must start slowly. I normally tell them to start twice a week and build up one day every week if they're tolerating, but hold on longer if not. And do explain the importance of using topicals if it's combined with oral antibiotics, because most of the patients I've seen this year were given a topical and the antibiotics, but they've given up on the topical. And of course, they're resistant to the antibiotic. Uh, I won't run through all the oral agents, you know them well, but something that comes up time and time again with my severe acne is beware the Mirena coil or any other progesterone-only contraceptive. We were told that the Mirena did not go into the system. It was fine, but we know clearly it's not great for acne, as are the implants and the mini pill. These are just a few pictures to show you the severe acne I've seen that we've treated with Roaccutane with great results but the scars don't go away. Uh, this young lad actually wasn't really sure that he wanted it, even though he had severe keloiding from his acne. This is going through his course and that's at the end of his course. Might look terrible, but there's no active acne, all scarring. That was his back. Again, the post is all scarring. This was a young lady. Uh, on her chest. She had not wanted to do Roaccutane because she was terrified of blood tests and had held on for three years. And she just needed a little bit of Emla. Um, but unfortunately, although she's done well, that's her back. Uh, so that's hard to get away from. So I do just say, try and remember to encourage your patients to, to get help early um, if they can, because there is quite a lot we can do before they scar. Treating the scarring is difficult. Rowena, thank yes, you. I wanted to put a couple of questions to you. Sure. Um, firstly, thank you for what is an extraordinary library of photos. And for us, it's really useful to be able to see before and after. And also to hear a little bit about your diagnostic dilemmas, because we face that every day uh, in our surgeries. And I love the story of the COVID skin as it kind of came and quite a few of us are seeing um, strange manifestations of it um, so it's nice to hear that you're challenged by it as Absolutely. well. Um, Grace has just asked a good question how long can a patient be on epiduo if no new lesions are appearing what can you do a step down as maintenance? Okay so they can actually stay on epiduo for really as long as they want if it's if it's holding them. I don't think there's a problem because the the benzoyl peroxide is great. You won't get resistant to that. But I do often step down to a pure retinoid, something like Differin, because they find the the um, you know it, it makes your fabric it bleaches things, so they don't like that. So they're quite keen if they can get off 
the bleach. So I often will put them down to Differin and Adepalene, which is the cream. If they've got a very sensitive skin, I won't use the gel. I'll use the cream, which is less drying. And uh, and, and they can go on. I tend to put all my Roaccutanes when they finish on Adepalene for a year. It helps with scarring as well. And uh, it's easy and sort of to prevent recurrence. And, and Anna's asked a question. Should you stop topical antibiotics when starting oral antibiotics and just continue the topical retinoid or benzyl peroxide? What's your advice? You know, that is the recommendation. And if you look at the BAD website, it is true. I have to say, it's not as easy as that practically when you're faced with the patient who says, I'm not giving up my DUAC no matter what. So I think you have to take a view. Um, I definitely wouldn't carry on with a pure topical antibiotic. If they use a bit of DUAC, it's got the benzyl peroxide in. So it's probably not going to, you know, get too much resistance. But yes, there isn't really a need because the oral antibiotic is doing it. Brilliant. Okay. And Sarah's made a comment um, asking GPs, have, the, have you had GPs using an advice and guidance access? We've got it in Swindon Hospital and their quick replies are always um, are great for reassurance. And I'd second that, Sarah. Um, so I don't do... I don't do it myself because I've moved out into the community, but certainly at secondary care um, at, at Winchester, they do have an advice and guidance. In the community, we also have an advice and guidance, but it wasn't used that extensively, um, but it is being picked up a bit. Um, but people tended to want the tele, when, once we got the telederm up and running, they were using the telederm rather than the advice and guidance. But certainly, uh, it, it, I think it's a very helpful. I know I often use advice and guidance with other colleagues myself. So I think it's a good way to practice and very helpful. And Tara's asked a great question. This goes back to when you were talking about what to ask patients to bring to us when they're, they're sending things. Can we have a copy of Verena's photo advice that you send to your patients? Could you, yeah. Would you be happy to share that? Yeah, that's absolutely fine. No um, problem. I'll send that to you, Jules. Yeah, send it to and me and I, can, I'll cascade that out. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something that's really useful because we're using a system, uh, we can text our patients out of our clinical system through AccuRx and they can reply. So yeah. we've got it's immediately there which is okay. which is really useful um and then the final question sarah it goes back to when you were talking about kind of remote consultation could the yeah. parents of school-aged children not attend remotely as well as uh, as well rather than having to drive to the school so I th i'm wondering if, if she's asking yeah. to triangulate it yeah, it, yeah no we you know what um i do my school-aged children i do like the parents to be there because invariably if they're not you have to phone them and do the whole consult again <laughs> but i just think for safeguarding even online and that i'm, I'm not really happy just to be online just with a teenager, you know, that sort of age. I do ask the parents to be there, but I have had the situation and I'm afraid I'm so non-tech, I can't do it, but the young people can, where they connect their mum at home with them at school, with me at the office. And if they prepared to do that, my secretary organizes that and that does work very well. But I do like to know mum or dad is there. I, I love the idea of us all learning new skills. <laughs> Rowena, that is as much time as we've got for today. And Thank I you so appreciate much. you put so much effort, effort into putting that together for us. And um, my reflections are very much around COVID, around FUDIX and how to use that uh, effectively. Uh, and I've also taken a, a lot of that remote triage uh, advice. So thank you. Um, we may need to invite you back to finish though, because there's so much more that we can. I'm <laughs> 
<laughs> lovely comments in the chat thanking you for your presentation um so i'll end today's meeting by just thanking you rowena and thank you for listening out there and we um we hope we'll be able to deliver some more dermatology wessex lmc's supporting you and your practice